passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. All right, uh, we are going to be continuing uh, through 1 Samuel uh, this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 23. Uh, so if you buy, have a Bible, go ahead and open up uh, to 1 Samuel. Um, while you're doing that, let me just take a moment to remind you uh, kind of where we've been so far in this book. 1 Samuel uh, 23 is a part of this section of the book of 1 Samuel where David is living on the run. He is a fugitive and uh, he's being chased by Saul. He's been anointed the future king of Israel and, and the current king, Saul, is doing everything in his power to put David to death, to hold on to the throne that he thinks is his and no one else's. In 1 Samuel chapter 21, through the end of the book, through 1 Samuel 31, uh, is really this section that covers a couple years of David's life, where David is hiding out in the wilderness. He's going from place to place trying to escape Saul, constantly being hunted. And while David can't see it in the moment, God, we can see later, God is using these trials as a time to, to shape his character. God is using the hardship of David's life to increase his trust in God, that God is, is someone he can rely upon even when things are horrible for David. This is a time where we see God at work in David's life, making him more willing to wait on God, more willing to wait on God's timing, not on his own. And as I was looking at, at 1 Samuel in preparation for this morning, um, I just was reminded again of Paul's words that I've, I've shared before as we've been in 1 Samuel. Paul's words in Romans 5 say this, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's not very hard to see that same work in David's life here in the book of 1 Samuel. God uses the, the trials of David's life to produce this endurance in him as he has to continue to wait for God to fulfill the promises that God has made to him. This waiting shapes his character. It makes him increasingly rely on God. And why, we might ask, why is he able to rely on God? Is because he, he increasingly trusts in God's promises. That in spite of the reality of his life, in spite of the, the present circumstances that, that David is experiencing, David concludes this God is trustworthy, that his promises are sure, that God will bring this to pass. And through all the ups of David's life, through all the downs of David's life, God's commitment to him never wavers, even though in the moment, David might not see that in his life. That's why this morning's text, I think, is, is so helpful for us. It's, it's a passage that reminds us of the ways that God takes care of his people. But it also reminds us specifically of God's encouragement for his people in the midst of hardship, in the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering. 
Our text is relatively straightforward. It's broken apart into two stories of God's faithfulness, one at the beginning of the chapter, one at the end of the chapter. And then right in the middle, we have this story of what I think is the heart of the passage, God encouraging David by sending Jonathan to speak life to David. I think that's the heart of the passage. Uh, I think it's important for us to notice this structure. These two bookends serve to focus on the middle. God's willingness to meet David through Jonathan in the midst of his hardship, in the midst of his weakness, in order to encourage his faith. And honestly, that's maybe where you're at this morning. You don't necessarily need to hear these stories uh, of more of God's provision for David over the course of his life, sparing his life from Saul. Maybe for you, because you find yourself in the midst of hardship, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of that affliction, to, to hear, you need to hear that God encourages his people when times are hard. But God doesn't just deliver his people, although that's certainly true, and we'll see that in this text. God also walks with his people, encourages his people. That God uses others to encourage us in the midst of our trials. Let's go ahead and dive into our passage. Before we do that, I want to pray once more uh, that God would bless our time in his word this morning. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we, uh, we rejoice in your word, over your word this morning. What a gift that we have this word. That this is not just a a history of things from thousands of years ago, things that are, are irrelevant to us, but that you through your spirit use this word, use scripture to shape us and mold us increasingly into the image of your son. God, we ask that you would do just that this morning, that you would turn our eyes to you that you would turn our eyes to the promises that you have made to us in Jesus and the assurance that we have in Jesus because of the gospel. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I mentioned we have a story and then the heart of the passage and then another story. That's kind of our our roadmap for this morning. The, The text begins with David in the city of Calah. Chapter 23 begins, and we find David hiding somewhere in the Judean wilderness, probably the forest of Hereth, if we've been following along. Chapter 22, verse 5. The scene is set in verse 1. All right, so this is uh, what causes the events of chapter 23 to unfold. It says this, Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Kayla and are robbing the threshing floors. All right, so we have a map that we, uh, we have not only on the screens that we'll throw up, but also in your Bible app that you can look at a little, a little closer if you want to follow along there. Kayla is, is one of, it's the, the middle of the three circles there. It is located pretty close to Philistine territory, only about 11 miles away from Gath, one of the leading cities of the Philistines in that day. It was a fortified city. We see that in verse 7 of our chapter. And yet, that didn't really help them in the midst of the problem that we see in verse 1. What was happening is that as they were threshing wheat, the Philistines would come up and they would take all of the wheat and, and just basically plunder them and rob them. Threshing would take place outside of the city in these flat open areas. You would take the equivalent of a pitchfork and you would take the wheat and you would throw it up in the air and the wind would catch the shaft and blow it away. So this is something that was necessary to take place outside of the city walls where you could have a breeze, and that's where the Philistines are pouncing, and they're robbing them of their harvest after all of the work. 
And it's likely that the, uh, the people of Cala, they send the, this message, this, this cry for help throughout all of Israel saying, will someone please come and save us? And because David is located in the forest of Hereth, just right there, uh, really close to it, four or five miles away, this word reaches him as well. And we see that David desires to go and save the people of Cala. Go ahead and take a look at verse 2. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Calah. Notice what David's first move is after he hears that the Philistines are attacking the people of Calah. It's significant because the first thing he does is the exact opposite of what Saul does. Saul, all the way back in 1 Samuel 13, was rejected by God because he decided to take military action without first asking God for his thoughts on the matter. And he loses the kingdom because of it. And then we see here, the first thing that David does is to consult God. Probably through the prophet Gad, who is is with David in this moment. And he asks God, hey, should I attack? Should I not attack? This is my desire. What would you have me do? And so God confirms David's desire to deliver the people of Calah and says, hey, why don't you go ahead and go? I give you my blessing. Verse 3, but David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Calah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, arise, go down to Calah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Calah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Calah. When Abiathar, the son of Abimelech, had fled to David and Calah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. So God gives David permission, says, go ahead and attack the, the the Philistines and save Kayla. The, the army that's with David is unconvinced. They, they think, you know what, it's already bad that, that Saul's on our tail. Why would we go and, and have now two fronts? We got the Philistines in front of us. We got Saul behind us. We're not going to Kayla. And so, so David says to God again, hey, can you give us a little bit more confirmation here? And God makes it even clearer. He doesn't just say go. He says, you know what, I'll deliver them into your hand. And this, this apparently works. I don't know how much convincing took place from David, who, who was content with following God from the very beginning, to, to his people to get them to go ahead and go to Caleb. But, but that's what happens. They head to Caleb. They rout the Philistines. They save the day. And do you see the contrast here? If you were with us last week, the contrast between Saul in chapter 22 and David here in chapter 23. 1 Samuel chapter 22, you can go ahead and just look at the header in your Bible and you'll see what it's about. Saul goes to Nob, he slaughters the priests of God, he's the one who kills God's people. And then we get to chapter 23, and we have David as the savior of God's people. This is the type of king that God's people so desperately need. So David delivers the people of Calah, and while he's there dwelling in the city, this is where the priest Abiathar, the last remaining priest, he escapes from Nob in chapter 22, and he joins David in Calah. That's what we saw, chapter 22, verses 20 through 23. That probably takes place right here in verse 6. And, and notice that the text tells us in verse 6 that when he comes to Calah, 
He comes with the ephod in his hand. Now, all of the priests would wear a special robe called an ephod, but the high priest would wear a special robe that came with something called the, the urim and, and thummim. And a part of this ephod, the, this dress of the high priest, were these two stones, the urim and, and thummim, that would be used that were really a part of God's plan to discern his will as the people of God. And so that's why the text here in verse 6 says that Abiathar came with the ephod. When Abiathar arrives, comes to David seeking refuge, he brings God's ordained means of seeking his will, of receiving revelation from God. Verse 7, now it was told Saul that David had come to Calah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Cala to besiege David and his men. So now the scene shifts to Saul. We see that Saul is delighted that, that not that David saved the people of Cala, but that David is now trapped in this fortified, walled city, and, and David's finally revealed himself. And so while Saul wouldn't muster an army to go deliver the people of Cala, now he's going to go to Cala with an army. But now he's going to lay siege to the city of Cala so that he can finally capture and kill David. David becomes aware of, of Saul's plan, after all, he sends out messengers mustering an army. That would have taken time. Surely someone uh, tipped David off, and so he becomes aware of, of Saul's plan. Then we get his response in verse 9. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Calah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Calah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Calah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Notice again, the first thing that David does. He takes no action before he consults God once more. Now he uses the ephod, this special ordained means, the shorthand. Uh, when it talks about the ephod here, it's just shorthand for consulting God through the high priest using the Urim and, and Thummim. David's first move, significant, because this is a test for David. Go ahead and flip back in your Bible to chapter 21. Chapter 21, we see that David is, is running from Saul. He's on the run. First place that he goes after leaving Gibeah is to Nob, the city of the priests. Notice what David doesn't do in chapter 21. He doesn't ask God what he should do. He runs to Nob. He relies on himself. He tells this lie that leads to the, the slaughter of all of the priests. After that, he doesn't consult God again. Instead, he runs off to Gath. He runs to the Philistines for help. So this is a test for David. In the past, he's lied. He's relied on himself. He's run to political alliances when Saul is after him. Now, what will David do? To whom will David turn? Praise God 
that here we see David is steadfast in his reliance on the Lord. He doesn't lie. He doesn't rely on himself. He doesn't run elsewhere. David instead relies on God and says, hey, how's this going to turn out for me, God? And God says, hey, you know what? If you stay in Caleb, the city is going to turn you over to Saul. They, they've seen what he's done to the priest at Nob. He slaughtered an entire city for just uh, allegedly helping you. How much more will they slaughter those who are actively harboring you against him? And so this city, they're, they're going to say, you know what? It's not worth, thanks, thanks, David, for all the help you did delivering us from the Philistines. But honestly, we're going to be in a worse spot if we keep you and, and are forced to go under siege from Saul than we would be just if you would have left us alone at the hands of the Philistines. And again, what does that say about Saul here? That it's worse than the Philistines to have Saul against you. Verse 13, then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Cala, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Cala, he gave up the expedition, and David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. So David and his men have consulted God. They, they get their answer from God. They, they act accordingly. They leave Caleb before Saul can reach there with his army. Verse 13 tells us that, quote, they went wherever they could go. That's not saying that they just scattered. It just means that they went from place to place, location to location in the wilderness of Judah together. We get to verse 14, and verse 14 is a really powerful verse. It's a really important verse for this, this part of David's life. Not just in chapter 23, but all of David's life as he's being hunted by Saul. Notice what it says again in verse 14. Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Saul's doing everything he can. Every single day, every waking moment, his sole focus in life is to capture and kill David, and yet God is the one who is keeping David safe. I think that's a really helpful reminder to us of God's care for his people. That if you are a part of God's people, his care for you, that even when your life is bad, even when things aren't going your way, even though the world around you rages, God has not abandoned you. But that's not all we see from this first story. I think the, the key to understanding this first story is, is actually to, to note the readiness of David to seek the will of God here. He's constantly running to God, seeking God's revealed word, that God would speak to him. That's what I mean when I say revealed word. He's, he's referring to this, this act of God speaking to him, either through the prophet or through the high priest and the, and the, the ephod. Because David here, unlike Saul, doesn't act without first consulting God. His first move is always toward God, always running to God, asking God for guidance. And I, I think should not the same thing be true of us as well? 
that we see David here, when his life is out of control, his first step is to run to God. His first step is to run to the word of God. You see how applicable David's actions here are for you and me. Before David does anything else, he goes to God and he goes to his word. He goes to the high priest. He goes to the revealed word of God. That's the, the message of these first few verses here. When your life seems out of control, run first to God and his word. Now, of course, this looks different for us today. We don't need the words of a prophet. We don't need the, the high priest to, to consult the Urim and, and, and Thummim here for God to speak to us. He's spoken to us through his word. That's what the Bible is. The Bible is not like any other book. It's living and active. Notice how God, through his Holy Spirit, uses his word in a way that no other book can claim. We see this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God has given you his word to accomplish his purposes in your life. But that's not all. Not only does God give us his word, notice that, that David comes to Abiathar, the high priest, in order for him to approach God, but God has given you a better high priest. Hebrews chapter 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I love that last verse. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He is the one who brings us to God because he always lives to make intercession for his people. Jesus, if you are found in Christ, Jesus is your high priest and he is living and he is making intercession for you, bringing you into the very presence of God when you pray. When your life seems out of control, when you can't grasp the circumstances, you can't control the things that are happening to you, these first 14 verses remind us to run to God, to run to him, to run to his word. You see, Saul's pursuit of David is relentless, but God's care for David is just as relentless. We see that care for David in the next section. I said this is the heart of the passage with David and Jonathan, verses 15 through 18. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. 
You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. It's clear that some time has passed between verse 14, which is a summary, and and verse 15 when this takes place. I don't know how long, but some time has passed, and, and I wonder what David's mental state was at this moment. Because it can be easy, or easier at least, to gear yourself up, to to be resilient, to persevere for a determined season that you know has an end date. If you only have to endure for for a week or, or a month or even two, three months, but you know that there's a time where that trial is going to come to an end, it is easier than if it is undetermined, indefinite, when the days become weeks, become months, become even years without any end in sight. It is easy to get discouraged. And we aren't specifically told that that's the case with David. We're not told that he is discouraged. But when Jonathan catches wind that David is in Horesh, he decides to make that that very difficult, risky journey to him in order to strengthen his hand in God. Jonathan sees that the very best thing that he can do for his friend in this moment is to go to David in spite of the risk to himself and to encourage him to look to God and to follow God and to see God's faithfulness. That's what this phrase here, strengthened his hand in God, means. If you just look at the context, verse 17 makes that very clear. Everything Jonathan says in verse 17 is rooted in the promises that God has already made to David. It's nothing new. He just said, this is what God has promised you, so look to that, be assured of that, be comforted in the promises that God has made. Look at verse 17 again. And he said to him, do not fear. For the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. Notice what Jonathan does. He's encouraging David in the midst of so much uncertainty not to fear. And the answer to why is because he is going to be king over Israel. In other words, Jonathan says, you don't need to be afraid because in spite of whatever's happening to you right now, God has already made his promise. That God has promised you that you will be the king. And because of that promise, Saul, my dad, is never going to capture you. Even Saul himself is aware of that promise that God has made to you. Even my dad knows that this pursuit of you is meaningless. He points David to the promises of God. He's saying, you know why you can trust God? It's because he is a trustworthy God. The character of God is one who keeps his promises, that he does not lie, that he is faithful, that he has, in spite of everything that is happening to you right now, you have no need to fear. 
All of these things are abundantly true with this God. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. He keeps his promises. And so Jonathan comes to his friend David, and he he brings this rock-solid confidence into the uncertainty of David's life that no matter what your present circumstances may look like, God will turn this for good. That's the message of this text when it says Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. He comes to David and he wrenches his eyes, his gaze from the circumstances that David is experiencing them and lifts them up to the trustworthiness of God. What an incredible friend Jonathan is here. And what a challenge to each of us as well. When you are discouraged How do you try to comfort yourself? When others around you are discouraged, how do you try to comfort them? I'm increasingly convinced, as I've been looking at this, that if you wanted to sum up or define what pastoral counseling is, it's right here. It's to strengthen someone's hand in God by pointing them to the trustworthiness of God. And that's not just a calling for pastors. That's a calling for each and every one of us. If we follow Jonathan's example, we will constantly be considering how we can remind others, those that are sitting right next to you, those that you talk to after the service, before the service, those that you serve with, how they can look to and latch on to the trustworthiness of this God. That's what this text is saying. This is one of the beautiful things about life groups, by the way. When life groups are working the way they are supposed to, they're a group of people reminding one another about the trustworthiness of God, the promises of God, that in spite of the circumstances of your life, that God will work this for good. No matter what you may face, you need people, brothers, sisters, to come alongside you when you are tempted to despair, that they would strengthen your hand in God by reminding you of God's promises, specifically in the gospel, and his faithfulness to keep those promises. This is the greatest hope that you can offer to other people. And so with Jonathan, we can say, do not fear to others in the ground upon which we stand and say so, no matter what people may face, no matter what we may face, is the character of God that he is a trustworthy God. That's what I hope we take away from Jonathan's words here in verses 15 through 18, this true comfort that he offers to David. It's this true comfort in affliction is found in the trustworthiness of God. If you want to offer someone true comfort, point them to the promises and the character of God. I'll give you an example of this from this past week. Um, some of you know uh, my grandmother is, is near death, and this past Wednesday, uh, she took a, a turn for the worse, and, and she, um, she's, still, she's still with us, um, but in that moment, we didn't think that she was, uh, she was going to survive how much time she had left, and, and there was a bunch of my extended family with her on, on Wednesday night, and uh, sad night, 
Do you know how my grandma, who is as a believer, comforted those who are with her? It wasn't with idle nonsense about, you know what, this is going to be okay. Well, why? Who knows? Just because that's what you're supposed to say. It wasn't with the meaningless lies of our culture of what they say life after death is like. She, She pointed people to the gospel. That in the midst of the suffering that she was experiencing, in the midst of the the face of death, she said, look to Jesus. That's where true comfort is found. Death might be our enemy, but in the gospel, it has been defanged because of Jesus. Because of the trustworthiness of this God. Because of this promise that God has made to his people in the gospel. If you want true comfort, if you want to offer people true comfort, point them to the trustworthiness of this God. And that's exactly what Jonathan does with David. David's eyes are fixed upon Jesus because of the encouragement of God through his friend Jonathan. He's focused on the promises of God, the character of God, and that's going to help him endure the stress of what is to come. David and Jonathan, they part. They go their separate ways. They'll they'll never see one another again. But Jonathan has played his part. He's been faithful. He's encouraged his friend to look to Jesus, to remember the the faithfulness of this God. And that brings us to the final part of this chapter, another story of God's faithfulness to David, this time while David is in the wilderness, starting in verse 19. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horesh, on the hill of Hekilah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure, know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there, for it has told me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you, and if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah." And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Let's go ahead and throw that map up again. Um, It will show us where this is taking place now. Um, Now, all of this is is located probably within seven, eight miles there of that that circle there at the, the bottom of the map. Ziph is this city that is located near where David is currently hiding out, somewhere in the Judean wilderness. And while the the people of Calah were willing to offer David up as a way to, to spare their own lives, no such compulsion exists here for the people of Ziph. They're apparently trying to get on Saul's good side. And so they go to to Saul and they offer him up and say, hey, we can deliver David over to you if you want. And Saul is delighted because he's seen David escape from him so many times. For years, probably, at this point. And because of that, Saul says, hey, you know what? This is a crafty guy. I need you to to do a little bit more reconnaissance for me. I need you to to map out all of his hiding places, map out all of the possible escape routes, and then after that, I will come to Ziph and capture him. And so they they return to, to scout out the land. Verse 24. 
Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued, David after, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. So David is regularly changing locations. We can go ahead and throw that map up again, uh, or, or this picture um, will show us exactly where we're talking about or what we're talking about here in this moment. He's, he's in the wilderness, and this is what the wilderness probably looked like that David is trying to run from Saul in. This is probably not exactly the rock that is being referred to in this moment, but is instead um, very similar in the wilderness of Maon here. Saul is pursuing David here, and, and as you can see from this picture, this would have been a slow pursuit, scrambling over those hills trying to capture him, and yet also escape would have been very slow as well. Let's look at verse 26. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. And I'm just going to pause right there. Because notice that the text slows down here. This tension is starting to build. The rock that we saw in verse 25. Can we actually throw that picture back up, Thomas? Again, this probably isn't the rock, but let's just imagine that that spot over to, to the right there is the mountain, the rock that is being referred to here in this passage. And the text slows down and it tells us that, that David is on one side, Saul is on the other side. And that's all that separates them. And I just want you to imagine in this moment, David and his army, they're fleeing. They're trying to scramble up hills like that. The, the rocks are, are sliding behind, below them because they're, they're, they're not strong and, and secure. And, and there's no chance for them to rest. The moment they rest, David will be captured by Saul. They're breathless. They're trying to get away. On the other hand, imagine Saul in this moment. He's growing more and more excited because he can hear on the other side of this mountain the, the noise of, of David's army trying to escape, that this is the moment at long last where he will finally capture David, that he will get what he has always wanted. He'll be able to kill him, and he's, he's getting closer and closer, and there's just a little bit more of the mountain to get around, and the victory is so close that Saul can almost taste it. And then we get to verse 27, and we read this. A messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. David's pretty lucky, huh? Of course, luck has nothing to do with it. Do you notice here in these verses that God isn't mentioned once? Actually, the only time God is mentioned is where Saul ironically invokes his name. And yet the text is <laughs> just saying, don't for a second think that God is not at work here. 
Remember what verse 14 told us. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Throughout our time in 1 Samuel, we've seen example after example of God's providential care for David. Remember what uh, this word providence means. We've used this definition of a purposeful sovereignty. Sovereignty saying that God is complete and utter control of all things, but purposeful. He's not arbitrary in his control. He has a very intentional purpose that God is at work doing. Uh, I'm a big fan of, of Lord of the Rings, and maybe you've been um, aware of this uh, Rings of Power TV show that's been on Amazon for the last couple weeks. And a couple weeks ago, um, I've been, so I've been following along. I've been watching it. I shouldn't say following along. I've watched each episode more than I should. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's the nice thing. It comes out on Fridays. I have Fridays off, and so I watch it first thing Friday morning. And no one else has, and so I can't talk to anyone about it. Um, woe is me. I'm kidding. All right. Uh, <laughs> a couple weeks ago, there was this episode where it's following two storylines, and, and there's going to be some slight spoilers here, but nothing that will really give it away. Um, it's fo- you can see, if you've been following it, where it's going. Um, it's following these two storylines. One's about this small group of villagers. They're to, trying to defend themselves against these hordes of orcs that are going to try and, and, and capture them and, and turn the land into their own. And then there's this other storyline of this group of warriors from thousands of miles away that have heard, I don't know how, but they've heard about the, the needs of this village to be delivered. And so in this episode, you have these two storylines, and you can see that they're about to converge. And you have this army that is traveling thousands of miles, and you have this really cool montage of them traveling over the course of this episode. Will they make it there in time? And then you have the, the small group of, of villagers, and they're trying to defend themselves. They're trying to save themselves. And, and they go through step after step of, all right, well, uh, that, that plan, you know, saved them for a little bit longer. And then, and then they have to back up and retreat and a little bit longer. And they get to this moment where the villagers are, are trapped, and they're about to be killed by all of these, these orcs. And then all of a sudden, the army shows up, saves the day. And I'll tell you what, when I watched that, I'm like, oh, come on. It just so happened to show up right in that moment. Give me a break. Life isn't like that. No one's timing is that perfect. Three days later, I'm reading 1 Samuel chapter 23. And I read this statement of of how close Saul is to David. And then a messenger comes saying the Philistines have come. And God intervenes. <laughs> my, my, oh, come on, no one's timing is that perfect. God's timing is. I'm on a Lord of the Rings kick, so I'll go ahead and keep going. One of the things um, that, that scene, that episode, it's a callback to a number of, of times in the Lord of the Rings trilogy where things are, are dark and people are tempted to despair and then at the last moment, good prevails. And I love the phrase um, that, that Tolkien uses in the Lord of the Rings when he's talking about those moments. And it's various variations of this. But he says, Hoped, ho- hope unlooked for arrived. 
Isn't that a beautiful turn of phrase? Hope unlooked for came and saved the day. As I was thinking about providence this week, I, I thought, man, that, that's a supremely appropriate description of providence and God's care for his people. It's not just David. This hope unlooked for, a messenger from the, uh, saying that the Philistines have attacked, brings Saul away at the last moment. It's true for you, too. It's true for me, too. That God's providence, his, his purposeful sovereignty, provides hope and deliverance. And all too often, it's in a way that is unlooked for from us. I think that's the lesson of this final story here in this chapter. That God shows us his kindness in unlooked for providence. God shows his kindness to people through his providence, and all too often that providence is unlooked for. These last few verses are dramatic, but they, they convey such an important, reassuring truth that if God can use the Philistines, the enemies of God's people, if God can use this mountain standing in the way of Saul to deliver David, do you not think that he can use any means he chooses to show his kindness to you too? His providence may be unlooked for. It may be unexpected. It may even be late by your standards and your timetable, but never by his. But in his kindness, God will always take care of his people, and that includes you. One of the unexpected blessings as we've been working uh, through 1 Samuel, at least for me, has been um, so many of the Psalms are written during this period of David's life. And they give us insight into David's heart as he's experiencing these trials, these difficult moments. We, we get to see how he is thinking about these things as he is experiencing them, both the good and the bad. And wouldn't you know it, there's a psalm that talks about verses 19 through 29, written by David during this time, Psalm 54. David probably wrote it in the midst of verses 24 and 25. He's running from Saul. He's, he's not completely escaped. He hasn't reached En Gedi yet. There's the, the Philistines haven't attacked at this moment. The messenger hasn't arrived. And yet notice how he ends this psalm as God has not quite delivered him yet. Verse 4, Behold, God is my helper, the Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies and your faithfulness put an end to them. With a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble and my eye has looked in triumph over my enemies. In the face of great trial, David doesn't lose sight of the faithfulness of God. Even when he hasn't been delivered yet, he expresses a confidence that God is trustworthy, that God has delivered him from every trial so far, and God's going to keep on delivering him time and time again. And I hope that's the message that we take to heart as we bring chapter 23 to a close here, that no matter where we are this morning, that we would remember, no matter our afflictions, no matter our trials, that that it is easy for the storms of life to, to crowd out our vision of the trustworthiness of God. And yet this text says, don't let that happen. 
Don't let that happen. Don't let the trials of life cast doubt on the faithfulness of God. That's the message of Jonathan to David. It's what David experiences through the deliverance God provides through his word at Cala. It's what God gives to David through his unlooked-for providence at the rock of escape. No matter what is facing you, don't let the trials of life cast doubt on the faithfulness of God. And in Psalm 54, David expresses confidence that even though he is still being pursued by Saul, God is the upholder of my life. How much more is that true of us because of Jesus? We have the assurance of the gospel, of the cross and the empty tomb, that we will never be forsaken, that God indeed is the upholder of our lives. Don't let the trials of your life cast doubt on the faithfulness of God. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways that it reminds us of who you are, of what you are like, of what you do for us. What a precious gift. God, we ask that you would help us in the midst of trials not to to lose sight of your goodness, of your faithfulness, of your care for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.